the only goal I have for for myself is just to, just do your the best you can. That's the only expectation that I set for myself. Welcome back to the Northern Sentinels podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ayotte. On this episode, I'm joined by Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan, the daughter of a police officer and school teacher. Jenny grew up in small town Quebec, surrounded by family and the outdoors. When she wasn't in school, sports, or dance, she was working at the family sugar shack and campground. Little did she know she was setting the foundation for a career in the Army. After graduating from military college in Kingston, Ontario with a chemical engineering degree, she started her career as a military engineer. Jenny has commanded soldiers at all levels of the military, both in Canada and overseas. Most recently, she was the commander of NATO's mission in Iraq during a particularly violent and unstable time in the region. She is currently the Chief of Professional Conduct and Culture in the Canadian Armed Forces. Listeners, here's my conversation with Jenny Carignan. Jenny, thanks for uh, coming by the house today. Really appreciate it and uh, for, for being part of the, the podcast. It's uh, it's great to have you in our home. Yeah, you're welcome, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We are talking about uh, the, the holidays a little bit before we, we got started here. And uh, you know, do you have any, is there any family traditions that, uh, that you, you carry on from whether you were uh, a kid or maybe your husband was that you, you look forward to every year? Yeah, always uh, looking forward uh, to see the family, uh, spend some quality time. Um, I like to make our, you know, traditional meat pies that my mother used to make. And uh, to me, as soon as the the meat starts to cook, it the 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 smell takes me back right back to my to my home as a, as a kid. So. And it's all about the small things, um, a little bit of decoration, time for, you know, long meals and, uh, you know, unwrapped gifts, very, very simple things. Was that the, the same for you when you were, when you were a kid growing up, the same, have you templated that? A little bit, uh, but probably, um, of course, big families on both my mom and my dad's side. So lots of uncles and cousins and, you know, so the families are smaller now. Um, you know, parties finishing at seven o'clock in the morning. Like we're not, <laughs> we're not that late nowadays, but it's, it's card games. It's, uh, yeah, a lot of loud people, which which was a lot of fun. Yeah, music, um, lots of music, guitar, violin, all of that stuff. Yeah. Where are your parents from? Where did your dad? Where's your dad's family side of the family from? So they're pretty much all from the uh, eastern townships um, in uh, in southern Quebec. Originally from Saint Adrien de, de Ham, which which are small farming communities. Um, that's where my mom was from, and my dad was from uh, uh, my my hometown, like used to call Asbestos, small mining town. Uh, now renamed three or four years ago, Val des Sources. So, uh, yeah, all, you know, both my parents are from the same area. 
It used to be asbestos was the name of the town? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a big uh, open sky mine uh, for, you know, for asbestos. So, yeah, the, the mine closed a few years ago due to the the ban on, on asbestos generally. And uh, the municipality decided to, uh, to uh, change the name um, um, a couple of years ago with, with a referendum and people voted on new names and all of that. So is the family traditionally in the farming business going back however many generations? Is that what the, the lineage is? Yeah, on my mother's side. So on my mother's side, yeah, it, it, she came from, uh, yes, farmer families. Um, my my grandfather on my dad's side was more uh, of an industrial uh, working in uh, in the mines a little bit, uh, but mostly more c- working in in business and living in 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 town, basically. So, so yeah, it's a mix of of both. Did any of your family work in the asbestos mine? No, uh, no. My dad was a police officer in, in Val des Sources, and my mom, uh, my mom was a teacher. So, uh, but I remember quite distinctively. At four o'clock in the afternoon, you could hear the sirens that would uh, advise everybody that um, the detonations were about to happen. Oh, okay. So every day around four o'clock, uh, the sirens would go off. And then a few minutes later, you would hear the explosives go off in the mine. Uh, I guess they did that. Again, I'm not an expert, but I guess they did that at the end of the day. So the ground had time to settle until folks were back in the mine the next day. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this is a distinct, uh, distinct sound, uh, that, you know, that I was raised mm. like with not noticing it pretty much after a while until I went off to engineer training. <laughs> That's right. somehow. I was thinking that. Yeah. Uh, how did you spend your time as a kid? Well, it, uh, as a kid, um, we, Basically, uh, it's, it's a lot of sports activities for me, like a, a, like family of four, but I think I was, um, very much inclined towards sports and arts. So mixing both of them, my sister and brothers had, um, had, uh, again, um, were attached more to music as well. So, for me, it was a mix of basketball, downhill skiing, and and uh, and dancing. So these were, I guess, my activities. Um, but we were also um, uh, solicited by uh, by uh, by the family okay. <laughs> extracurricular activities. Drawn into certain <laughs> things, yeah. Yeah. So uh, my father, although he was a police um, police officer. Um, had a lot of um, other hobbies. So we had a sugar shack um, and awesome. we also had a, uh, a campground by a lake um, in the middle of the mountains of the eastern townships. So usually spent uh, time in the fall to, uh, to prepare, to cut down the woods, prepare it for the spring uh sugar season and then uh, in the summertime we were off to the to the campsite to get things ready and then being employed in welcoming people and campers and you know getting people all sorted out that sort of thing so uh 
yeah, so yeah, a lot of family sort of work mixed with various, you know, activities. I think that a lot of our kids participate into. Do you have a sweet tooth? Uh, I do. I, I can eat a phenomenal amount of uh, maple syrup and uh, sugar. I, um, yeah, I have, uh, we have been raised with, saucy uh, la palette that we say in French. It's a wooden, uh, sort of a wooden stick that you dip into the hot, uh, boiling maple syrup and then it sticks to the to the wood and then you eat it and it's then like once, a lollipop well no like before it gets to being a toffee uh, okay then it, when it gets thicker uh, that's when you pour it on the snow so and it's then before that it's before oh, that okay yes yeah, i don't so, think i've had that before Yes, so it it can be a couple of hours of um, yeah of eating the the <laughs> syrup until it's ready to pour uh, as a toffee on the snow. So yeah. So yeah. if you don't have access to that because we don't have a sugar shack in our backyard, what's your? Do you have a favorite dessert or a favorite go to for your sweet tooth? Uh like again, a big winner is always the uh, maple. Maple sugar pies, mm. you know, where you mix some toffee with, with cream and then right. you bake it in the oven. It's absolutely lovely. So mixing fat with maple sugar is always a good mix. Yes. You, you can't go wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm a big fan of uh, sugar creme and, uh, but it's, it can be dangerous. You gotta be, you gotta be quite careful with, uh, with it. If people haven't had a chance to, to sample some of those parts of Quebec cuisine, it's really awesome. Yes, and uh, we used to host like uh, uh, like in in the spring, like we've all <clears throat> attended sugar shack dinners. So we used to host those, like with with a hundred people coming over for the traditional sugar shack uh, meals, and with mountains of dishes and big pots and pans and greasy stuff and like yeah so the 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 family business was uh yeah attending college coming back for the weekend to give a hand with with all of that stuff it was a lot of work but yeah i learned so much uh as well to that experience so your father was a was a police officer did you have a sense of of service at a young age as a result of that, or maybe other members of the family, when did that sort of start to take root? Well, um, of, of course, when, when your father walks into the, 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 the home, the house with, with his police uniform on and his gun at the belt and, uh, the police car is, you know, parked, you know, when he becomes home for lunch or for dinner, like it, it you know, you grow up with that picture in mind and um, you don't necessarily as a kid um, don't necessarily have a sense for what this really means or what he really does every day but you could sense that he's had some good days and he's had some bad days uh, but of course you know watching him go off standing in the window um, and then asking him to turn on the, the, the police lights, <laughs> yeah. like we had a bit of that, uh, 
of that, uh, you know, request every time he came for a meal. And of course he, he did that. So that, that was, um, that was a little bit of fun. Um, um, I used to go, uh, shoot his pistol with him at the range. They had an indoor range at the, the police station. So, uh, we could go and fire some rounds down range. Loved, uh, doing that, uh, with my dad as well. So, of course, you kind of grow up with that picture in mind. My mom was also a teacher um, and very passionate about um, raising uh, her kids in the classroom to, to become, you know, to become all that they could be. My mom always had that, um, that aura around her, like, um, so I kind of grew up in, in the middle of all, all of that. And, and it probably did influence some choices down the road somehow. Unconsciously, I would say. Was there anybody who was particularly influential in your life that maybe put you on the track towards joining the military? Not really. Um, I think we had a very, um, very close, uh, family. Like I have like, uh, two brothers and one sister. Um, we, um, like we don't have any military background in the family at all for as far as I can remember. So it, it's, um, it just came a little bit totally by par hasard. Totally mm. par hasard. Yeah, I had never seen a military uniform before I had to iron them. Well, how, how did it get introduced to you then? If you're in this, uh, in this town of Quebec, um, there isn't a military presence there. Uh, you don't have a military background in the family. So how does it go from being a uh, high school student asbestos to being uh, enrolling in the military then? It's, it's, uh, friends of the family. So, uh, um, like, uh, family friends of, of my, uh, of my parents had a son, uh, joining, uh, um, RMC. So, uh, he started in CMR Saint Jean and, uh, the, the, uh, the, the lady just basically said, Hey, why don't you come over and, you know, uh, have a look at the, um, Saint Jean had a, a end of year show, uh, where, you know, you have the graduation parade with, with, uh, with a show for, with, uh, um, drill and, uh, jumping and, uh, you know, and it was demonstrations, right. um, so just went, went and, you know, attended the show and then spoke to a few people and looked at the end of year book. And I said, wow, that sounds like, you know, that sounds like it could be fun. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, it remained, um, it opened an option after secondary five, which, which I didn't immediately take. I decided to go to civilian college, uh, as I finished my secondary cinq, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, did a year there before I decided to, Hey, maybe I should give, uh, the military college, a, a shot. And what was the, did you have a vision for if it wasn't going to be the military? So you 
you left high school, you did your first year of post-secondary. What was that potential glide path going to look like then? All I could see as a potential career for us was a ballerina. I was going to be a professional dancer. That's what I was going to be. So, but understanding uh, the, the level of difficulty and the challenges, I always kept my doors open. Uh, so I did pure science, uh, did, you know, the maximum of credit I could, um, went to college in a science program, again, to open up as many doors as possible for any university programs, um, uh, knowing full well that I had to have a plan B if plan A was not going to work. So, um, but again, as the military college option sort of basically seemed attractive, my mom had basically sort of suggested one night as we were, you know, doing the dishes, she basically said, hey, you know what, maybe you should think of engineering. Maybe engineering would be a, a great program for you. I said, what does an engineer do? <laughs> <laughs> So just planting a seed, just, you know, just offered it as a, as a possibility, which basically got me into look searching and what does that do? And then again, balancing my options. I was totally bored in college, totally bored. Um, it was, you know, about studying, going to school, um, of course, you have a lot of great social activities, had lots of fun, um, made new friends because, of course, you show up. I had to leave my hometown to go to college in Sherbrooke. Um, but I was at the bottom, like I, I couldn't see what what would come out of it. So looking at the, the military college program with uh, the opportunity to learn English, the opportunity to work on leadership, um, getting an engineering program and do sports, which is another passion of mine. I said, oh, that's, that looks like fun. And so this is kind of what what tipped me over to give it a shot. I said, I'll try it. And if, if I don't like it, I can always, you know, change course at one point, but I never stopped dancing. Okay. Never stopped dancing throughout my whole career, throughout the past 38 years. All, 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 all forms like ballroom. Um, yes. Somehow I found some ways of, of staying connected, did Highland dancing while I was at RMC um, did a little bit of ballroom dancing at the same time. And when I graduated, always kept it up for, for all of that time. Yeah. In, with, you know, cut off by deployments or sometimes, you know, moving to a new place by the time you need to find a new school and that sort of thing. So, but always kept it up. It's been, it's been a passion for me. I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, hobbies for the future, because I think that's, uh, that's always an important thing when you end up, you know, leaving, leaving the military, uh, hobbies, I think are really important. 
And I was going to ask you if you had any sort of hobbies that you were going to maintain or things you wanted to develop. So clearly dancing is, is one of them. Are there, is there anything you're not doing right now? Uh, Cause you don't have any, any time for a lot of hobbies, but things you uh, you've looked at and said, I'm good. When I, when I leave service, I am going to do this. Mm. I've always kept, um, hobbies and other activities going. So <clears throat> learning, learning a little bit from uh, my father, like hearing my father says, well, when I retire, I'll do this. Um, uh, but then, uh, he got sick later in life after he retired. So I said, Hmm, I don't think I'm going to wait until I retire to do things that are, you know, of interest, of a passion to me. So I always reserve time aside to do other stuff. Um, so I've, I've, uh, you know, I've always liked, uh, anything that was related to making things, arts, um, so painting, knitting, sewing, um, creation, like create something. So I've always kept it up. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, uh, I have not a lot of time to do it, but I've always kept it up. So I'm, I'm knitting a whole whack of blankets for Christmas gifts this right. year. So I've started in September. And well, this will be published after Christmas. So there won't be any surprises <laughs> given away. <laughs> Well, they're they're difficult to hide because it's uh, so. Again, I've um, I've always if I sit down for an hour or two, it it keeps my mind busy. It gets me, you know, it gets me, it gets my mind off something. Um, so I've always kept um, you know other activities uh, aside uh, that that makes me that makes me happy. So. Uh, I won't be looking for new hobbies when I retired because I've, you know, I've got a lot of them already going and I'm just going to be, it's just going to be a continuation of, of what I'm already doing. Uh, camping is another thing that we love to do as a family. Um, so we've always had an RV, uh, ready to go for, okay. yeah. So we've, we've been RVing. Um, since, I don't know, since after a few years after graduation, especially since we've had kids. So as soon as we had kids, mm -hmm. we got ourselves an RV and then we are RVing. Um, we did, we did a lot of it. Um, and we, we still do. Uh, so, so again, there won't be too many things new to my routine when I, when I retire. That, that's awesome. Just more time to do it. Yeah. I think that's really important too, because, uh, I think so many people, like you said, just, well, when I retire, I will do X, Y, and Z with not realizing that life will get in the way of those things. So why not start now? Even if it's just a little bit, a little mm -hmm. bit of time dedicated to it, start to kind of keep it, uh, keep it going. I think that's fantastic advice because you never know what's going to happen in the future. So you don't, you don't come from a, a military family. How was the transition from civilian life into the military? 
for you? How did you find that? I was absolutely brutal. <laughs> it was a shock. Um, it was a shock being parachuted in Kingston um, uh, at at the military college. Um, so you did all four years at in Kingston. Yes, because because I had one year of college. Right. I I went straight uh, to Kingston again. It's to bring in a community of francophones to Kingston. And I didn't have to do the prep year uh, in Saint Jean, so so I just went straight to Kingston. But prior to that, the basic training um, did basic training in Chilliwack at the time. Uh, it was a bit of a shock. Um, why? Because I am a very very self disciplined individual. I don't need to be reminded what time to get up when to have a shower, when to, you know, when to put your clothes on, when to be, you know, what I need to do prior to be ready for a specific appointment. So I felt like I was shackled. Um, and we also need to understand that I had a lot of freedom as a kid. I could run around just about everywhere I wanted. Um, uh, once I was set free in the woods, like I would, like I never attended summer camps, organized activities ever. I always organized my own activities. Um, my parents never looked into my school bag, never supervised, never supervised my homework ever. Like, um, so I was being um, somehow mentored, but never supervised closely. Uh, so to me, joining the military, where I, wa I had this layer of external discipline imposed on me, felt really, really crushing. Um, but again, learning to, um, learning to basically navigate through that. So understanding that in a big group, you have to have some form of structured, organized way of doing things. Um, and then learn to work together as a team as well. Uh, so, like, being late for an appointment is a total foreign concept to me before I joined the military. Like, like, pu like putting an, assign an assignment forward on time, like, to me was normal. So I just couldn't understand how people could be late for something without being yelled at. Like, right. it, to me, it was a, it was a total foreign concept to be late for an assignment or to be late for an appointment. So it was a big shock. But again, navigating, how do I find my freedom within that setup? Because I just absolutely loved the folks I met. I loved the folks I worked with. I loved the, um, Again, the, the, the fact that we were getting together to accomplish something, um, 
just just a, a funny story. For the life of me, I couldn't understand why they were forcing us to to put together a set of orders. Like anybody in the military all understand situation, mission, execution, concept of ops, instru- like coordinating instruction. Like we were asked, we were given a task to change a tire on a car, on the truck. Yeah. And, and, and what do you mean I have to put a set of order situation mission? Like, like give me four people. I'll get it done now. Like for the life of me, I could not just to give you an example of on how crushing this was to me, couldn't understand why I was asked to structure and format, like, give me a break. I know what to do. Like, Okay, you folks do that while we do that. And then we just go ahead. Like, I refuse to write a set of orders. So I failed my first ask. (laughs) 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 But I got the job done faster. Like I said, like I said, what do you mean? I finished an hour early and you're failing me. Yeah, well, you didn't do your orders. I said, what do you mean you didn't do your orders? Like, what is that good for? (laughs) Did that, was that, uh, I mean, you're, you're reflecting on this now with all this experience, uh, behind you, but at the time, was that discouraging to the point of you ever thought, I don't know if this is for me. I mean, they want me to change this tire for a task, but they want me to sit down and write it out in detail. Did you have those moments where you went, I'm not sure about this, this thing? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I, um, Somehow I felt a benevolence from our troop supervisors. Um, I will never forget that warrant officer, these two warrant officers looking after our platoon. Never in my, like, to me, they were like, they were strict, they were firm, they were fun. Um, they make, they made it interesting. We worked really hard. Um, and, uh, but we on, like, they made us understand that there was a, a necessary structure behind what we were, they were asking us to do. Uh, so I guess this is how I came to understand the need to organize big groups, so of course you can change a tire without, without a set of orders. But we use the same methodology for, you know, section attacks or for other big group problems that we have to solve. So I felt a sense of benevolence that they really did care about us. This is what I felt from these two warrant officers, um, leading our, our group. So it's warrant officer Boivin, Royal 22e Regiment. I will never forget warrant Boivin and the influence he had very, very early on in, in, for this, for this platoon. Yeah. Now that was basic training in Chilliwack, but you also did other training in Chilliwack as well. Uh, your trade training and, and how was that different and what was your impressions about engineer training when you got to that point? I really liked um, all of my engineer training. Like it was a nice break from the R- RMC environment as well. So 
RMC, you're very focused on your uh, engineering degree, your your academic studies, uh, trying to make the schedule fit in between everything that you got to manage at RMC. So to me, the summertime training, when we put our, our combat uniforms on with, with the, um, the physical fitness training, um, with the, um, um, technical training also, like the technical stuff that we would be asked to do once, once the college was, was finished. Um, again, to me, really enjoyed, um, the training during the summer, which again, a change in pace and different problem sets, I guess, mm. in the summertime, uh, for army engineer training. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time that we've, we've talked about your sort of family history. Uh, so understanding how you grew up in asbestos, it makes a lot of sense that, that aspects of, of army life would be really appealing. I mean, especially how did you find the the field portion in Chilcotin? So for those listening, uh, the engineers at the time used to go up to central British Columbia to a, a big training area there and spend a month, which could be quite shocking for some people. But I imagine it probably was not for you based on how you grew up. It was not. No. In fact, I felt very much in my element. I always felt comfortable under a tent uh, sleeping under the stars, um, in a sleeping bag in the middle of nowhere or in a trench or digging a trench. And like, to me, to me, this was a lot of fun mixed with learning a bunch of, you know, a bunch of new things and techniques and, and how to organize yourself. To me, it was absolutely fascinating. Don't get me wrong. Like, uh, of course I, I, <laughs> I have a lot, like there's days where you have good days and there's days where you have really, really bad days. Um, but I look back on this and then and even when I was going through it fondly, uh, about uh, on, you know, the many adventures and woes that, you know, happens to you as you're, you're going through with it. Um, so although you're in the middle of a wet trench under the rain, um, uh, in the mud, uh, with one of your buddies, you know, standing on guard on, on an empty field in front of you, trying to not fall asleep on your, on your weapon. Um, yeah, there's, a lot of funny stories that, uh, you know, like the rain washing off your set of orders on your, you know, <laughs> on your plastic thing because you took the wrong, the wrong pen and all the of a sudden you have, you have to ad lib your, your, your orders, um, you know, total confusion in some of the operations that we've done, complete miss. <laughs> Yeah. Yo. So, uh, I look very fondly about, um, I, I think we had absolutely great instructors that, that allowed us to develop as persons, but also as, as professionals. There's a real power in that shared experience. And I'm sure you have, as, as I do, um, still a number of really good friends who are part of those experiences. And that for me, I think is one of the, the most powerful things about uh, about service 
are those shared experiences and how they, they bring us all together and, and connect us. People who may not have anything in common before that experience are drawn together because of those experiences and sometimes for a lifetime. Yes, yes, absolutely. We we can recon, rec, uh, reconnect uh, many, many, many years later, 10, 20 years later, and uh, still have a good laugh about, you know, all the silly things that uh, that we did. The times we got lost and then, you know, wander around for hours before finding your way back to camp. Uh so, um, yeah, it, they're not fun when they happen to you, but it all happens for a good reason because, you know, as, as we learn, um, no plan survive first contact and then you gotta, you gotta find your way through unforecasted events or situations. When you look back on your, the early stages of your career, uh, are there any, particular moments uh, of, you know, hardship, failure, struggle that stand out to you as being formative? Oh, yes. Uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is is the chainsaw story. Um, and uh, like I, I was amongst um, the, the first women to go through training uh, when the combat arms opened to women in 1988. And I remember showing up at the engineer school um, and then feeling a, a certain level of scrutiny uh, from the young instructors that were there. Um, now, like now these women were going to come and join us in the real, you know, engineer regiments. So game on. So this is kind of what, what I felt, um, when, when returning to school after the, 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 the policy had changed. So we basically, um, as you know, we need to build a non-standard bridge, uh, during our phase training. And I remember sitting in class learning about the, the, um, the techniques to build an NSB and then telling, praying to not get this task. I like, I was praying to be just somebody that could just follow orders that day. Cause I said, please don't give me this task. And as I, we, I had been digging all night a minefield by hand, because of course the, the plows don't work very well in Chilcotin. No, they don't. So digging mines, hundreds of mines by hand, I was on dig, on the digging party and then I was sleeping with my head on my helmet. At six o'clock in the morning, I, somebody gives me a kick and says, you know, Carignan, go and get your warning order. So I go, got up, you know, sat down and when the instructor told me, Carignan warning order, build an NSB, I thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> it's like your brain makes it happen in some way. Please don't give me this. And then it happens. And then it happens. So here we are. Um, Everything that could go wrong for that task went wrong. Everything. So, um, got, got in the vehicle to go get your orders, but got lost on the way there. So I think I was an hour late to get my, my orders. Um, 
So finally, uh, got there, received the orders, uh, went back, uh, built the plan. So I don't know, you just pull yourself up and, you know, you know, somebody has got to do it and then it's me. So, you know, uh, so anyways, got things going, um, got to the site in the morning. So as the troop commander, you know, the folks deployed, did the security on the site and then deployed to the site. And then an instructor was hiding in the, like at the edge of the wood there. And then bam, bam, no, they, your troop commander is dead people. So now you got to keep going to IC takeover. So they took me out for a couple of hours, but I think I think now I know they probably sent me back so that I could have a bit of a sleep because I had, hadn't sleep for a few days getting ready to, to go there. So they took me out and I thought, okay, I'm done. I have failed. Like I was late. Then I'm, you know, I'm removed. I'm done. I failed my task. They, re- they brought me back a few hours later only to realize that the building site was silent. I said, what's going on? Like all work had stopped, nothing. All work had stopped. So what's going on? Well, the chainsaws don't work anymore. Like, what do you mean they don't work? Because you had to cut down trees to build the bridge. Well, nobody knows how to sharpen a chainsaw. So like, I think we must have been the only engineer course that didn't learn how to build, uh, how to sharpen a chainsaw. So I have some doubts that they might have given me this task and then not show us like, again, did they really want me to fail? I like, I felt like all the gods were against me that day. So I said, bring them over. I'll sharpen them and I'll show you how, because with all this time I spent in the woods with my dad, I knew how to sharpen a chainsaw. So I think the sergeants couldn't believe what they were saying. Like I knew where to put the glove. I what knew are the how odds she knows how to sharpen chainsaw. How the <laughs> hell does she know how to sharpen a chainsaw? So I taught everybody how to do it. This is how you do it. And then the chainsaws kept like kept going. Then I was late, of course. So I was supposed to be done by eight o'clock at night. Um and uh so sent the report in, like estimated time of completion midnight and they say yep yep Carignan kept going kept going (laughs) Uh, so I I said I definitely failed I definitely failed the task so but kept going drove my my vehicle on top of it at the end and then went to bed uh sometime after midnight, after the bridge was complete. So next day I went for my debrief, dragging my feet because I thought like I would have a bad news. And they basically said, uh, Madame Carignan, he said it's, it's the first time in the history of this course that this bridge actually gets done. So well done to you. And, and, and I was, I didn't understand what he was telling me. I, I didn't understand what he was telling me. So that day I learned a lot of lesson. Um, I learned that a lot of things could go wrong and it still doesn't mean that it's over. Um, it's over only when you decide it's going to be over mm-hmm. and maybe just one more minute is going to be enough to, to get you through, which 
has served me extremely well for the rest of my career. Don't expect things to go as you would like them to be. They, they are going to be as they are and accept them as they are. Uh, but uh, again, there's a way, there's a way through it somehow. Yeah. So learned a big lesson that they, that, that served me extremely well. What year was that? Did you do your first train? Uh... This was, uh, so 87, 88. This would have been 89. Okay. So you, you weren't there for the, uh, you were there a year after the Slessy Range incident. That was my phase training actually. Was yeah. It? Yeah. So that was my, my phase training. So we were getting ready to move up next when the accident happened to the group just ahead of us. Yeah. So we lost a lot of people that day. Yeah. So that was on your course. Yeah. Yeah. So a big, again, um, lots, you know, you learn very, very early on that what we do is dangerous in training, like in, in real life, whether at home or deployed, and that we have a lot of responsibilities as leaders when we, when we do our training. Yeah. Yeah, for the listener, um, there was a, uh, a range accident in Chilliwack with uh, with explosives uh, where how many students were killed? We had six, six, um, six deaths that day and then um, five very, very gravely injured, severely mm. injured. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a there was a shift in how certain procedures took place on the, with this particular uh, demolition practice for for years after that. And, uh, yeah, there's still a plaque memorializing those students in the engineer school in Gagetown now. How many years of service do you have now? I'm in my 38th year, I think, if my math is correct. 38th. You look back on your, you know, maybe the further text, especially the tactical portion. I mean, what are the, whether it's your favorite job, I mean, that's always hard to say, but and what are the, some of the highlights you look at that were most meaningful to you? It's very hard to see all of it. I see. I I think um, I I look back to uh, the whole tactical um, experience as a a joyful experience. Um, I'm I'm so so grateful for. Uh, the teammates I met, um, the folks we had, um, to, um, um, to build. We, we built teams. That's, that's what we were about at the time. Lots of laughs, lots of, um, as, as usual, uh, goofy things, uh, happening, um, lots of goofiness. That's what I kind of remember from my tactical years. A little bit of fun, uh, in, in what we were doing, of course. Um, but of course, um, some really, really good days, but some really, really good dark days as well. Not everything is, is always rosy. Um, but looking back, that's often what we remember the most is those, you know, those goofiness, like a, a lot of images. Uh, run into my head as some of the faces that um, uh, that highlighted those those years at uh, at the tactical level. Yeah, lots of lots of great friends, lots of great teammates. Um, 
Uh, but of course, some really, really difficult things to do as well at the same time. Was there a noticeable transition when you started getting more jobs that were more institutional jobs? Did those feel different to you? Or was it just sort of same same sort of thing, different environment? I think the biggest change for me was a transition to uh, the general officer cadre. This is when I hit a wall um, at the institution level. Because before that, we do a lot of, of tactical um what we do is very specialized um it's it's problems who are fairly clear uh to solve fairly easy to solve um it, what i would say is you could apply a mix of science innovation and procedures to solve problems I hit a big wall at the general officer level. I, there's, there's two times in my career where I thought about leaving. There's only two periods in my career where I really seriously considered leaving the military. The first is, is when I had my first child. I couldn't see how I was going to make this happen. I couldn't see how I could balance both and do both of them well, both my role as a mother and my role as a professional. And the second wall I ran into is when I moved to the executive level, to the general officer rank, um, that institutional wall and the breadth and complexity of problems that are thrown at us at the general officer level. So these are the two times when I said, well, maybe this is not for me anymore. And, and two, these two, these are very two definite moments in my life where I really thought, mm, I think this is time to go. How did you overcome those moments then? Well, remember my chainsaw story? Mm -hmm. Just hold on one more minute. There might be something else. Intuitively, um, intuitively, I, uh, I looked for answers. Um, so what I did in the first case is I went off and I went back to school. So I asked to go do a, a um, master's in business administration. And people were wondering why. Why do you want to do that? Well, I think I said I don't have enough tools in my tool sets to tackle what's being thrown at me right now. I suspect that I'm not doing it quite the way it should be. I should be able to balance both a family and the profession at the same time. So I, I did that. Um, and that opened up a whole range of other options. Um, and another way of, of thinking through problems, thinking through issues. Um, so that's, that's kind of what got me through this first hurdle. Of course, you have to organize yourselves at home as well. Um, so I have to remind myself that I'm not alone, that I have this absolutely fantastic partner and team at home as well. So it's, it's, again, it's, bringing everybody and it's good for everybody to share to share that uh, space as well at home um 
And then at the executive level, um, I had to rethink uh, the way I was doing business, re reassess how um, that system was working, completely new system at the institutional level. I reached out to get a little bit of uh, mentorship from senior executive in the public service because they know Ottawa well. Um, so reached out to get a little bit of that. And as you know, as I was in the middle of making a decision, um, kind of shared this with my, um, with my boss at the time and very supportive. This is when I get a division command out of second Canadian division. And that brought me back that, that allowed me, um, that creative space that I feel I need to do my job well, um, having a, a division uh, to lead allowed me a little bit more space for, again, creativity. And um, yeah, uh, so that, that kind of reconciled me a little bit with that level. Then immediately went on from there to Iraq and then brought back to, to Ottawa a little bit better prepared. So uh, seeing the institutional level from the division and what I had seen after two years of institutional uh, leadership allowed, allowed me that perspective. So again, just was absolutely fortunate and grateful for my for my superiors' support in doing that. You gave me some great advice uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, so I'll quote you back to you, or at least the best of my memory. I can't remember what I told you in Iraq. <laughs> it, was, it was when I was told what job I was coming back to, and uh, you had served in the sort of companion job in, in Army headquarters, and you just encouraged me to um, to reset my expectations in the way that I view things. Because some of these jobs are, well, my words, maybe not yours, almost undoable or at least undoable in the way that you are used to doing jobs. And it was, it was really useful for me um, in, in that role. And I'm wondering how you... How you set expectations when you're taking on these massive challenges, problems, um, you know, especially the one that you're dealing with now or, or anything else. I mean, the Iraq problem is, a, is another great example. How do you set goals and expectations um, for yourself uh, that is reasonable, realistic um, when you're dealing with these incredibly complex issues? So the only goal I have for, for myself is just to, just do your, the best you can. That's the only expectation that I set for myself. So just do the best you can. Um, it's to me, it's a, it's a way to set you up both well for failure and for success. So you need to set yourself up well for failure because you need to be able to recover from failure. So those, 
those problems are so complex. They are like, again, I would say that I still agree with what I told you, basically, because sometimes I do disagree with myself a few years after once I realize I was wrong. So I always reserve the right to change my mind on what I said previously. So I would say I still agree with what I told you. (laughs) (laughs) Which means I probably quoted you to you correctly. Correctly. Absolutely correctly. Um, So doing the best you can to me, set us up well for failure, if failure happens and set us up well for success, if success happens, um, in, in having the right balance, um, because one, you need to recover from a failure. And then secondly, if you have success, it cannot build your ego. Um, it cannot, um, take you to a place where you think you're right all the time as well. You still need to have a very balanced approach. So doing the the expectation of doing our best to me is the right, uh, you know, is the right balance between what could happen next. Again, understanding that the problem we, we are tackling may not have a solution in sight. Um, having respect for the problem that's in front of you uh with with all its complexities and with with all of its chaotic uh dynamics um needs to be respected so again um it's having respect for what you are tackling and what's in front of you and then then it's just about doing the best you can the other thing that uh is important to me anyways, when I tackle, uh, when I tackle those level of complexities is that you can't go at it alone. You can't. So the other, the quote that I never quite understood, uh, I do in some ways, uh, is, uh, like it, it feels alone at the top. I never understood that, I never agreed with that sentence because you never have to do it alone, ever. Um, due to the size and the breadth, again, and the level of complexities of these strategic problems, no one person has a good view on all of its angles. We have a lot of blind spots. So having a team of folks around you to gather what they see and then go at it together, um, to me again is, is a way to get, to get better results and some progress. And again, it's tempering, um, the end state of a, you know, a full success or victory. I'm mindful that sometimes we can only settle for progress looking at some of these prog- some of these problems and the level of difficulty that they represent. You had mentors along the way and if you've had mentors these been people that you actively sought out or people who have introduced themselves to you or wanted to support you along the way. I mean, what is that sort of support from an institutional kind of perspective mentoring looked like in your career? 
So I, uh, and again, there, there may, I, I haven't, you know, I haven't, um, final, quite finalized my thoughts around this, but I never felt there, and there's probably a gender piece to that. I never felt that I could nor should reach out for a mentor. Maybe because I felt that it would be unfair. It would be, I would have a special treatment. And I felt always um, bad about having a special treatment. Never wanted to be perceived as somebody who's had a special treatment. And now that I look back at it, Unfortunately, what this means is it was probably not fair to me because a lot of my colleagues, I realize now, many years later, never um, felt bad about reaching out for some advice where I did. And, and again, that might just be me, but probably cutting myself out from some really, really good advice that could have enabled me better and prepared me better over time. Um, so again, um, the, uh, the person that um, I connected with in Ottawa was somebody else who said, hey, listen, how about I introduce you uh, so th there might be something that you might want to share, or if you have questions about the auto environment, maybe she can help you out with that. I said, sure, I'll do that. Uh, but unless it was proposed to me or I was invited in, I rarely reached out for advice. And then this is not a good posture to have. I realized that this was not, this was wrong. And I would advise anybody now. I had my, my advice to people is to go, go out and seek advice because I realized that when people reached out to me, I was absolutely, uh, very open and, and available for anybody who seeked advice to me. I felt always bad about giving advice to people who did not ask me for advice. Right. <laughs> that, I, I, yes. So again, now that I'm a little bit more mature, I realize that this is something that, um, I would encourage people to do is when you're not sure, when you have questions, reach out for advice. That's, it's a sign of intelligence. It's a sign of, yeah, I was not very bright for, for that, for that part of my, you know, posture, I think. <laughs> There's got to have been an influence on your level of independence and autonomy as a, as a child of having so much agency in, in what you were doing that sort of led to, led to that approach. I can, can't imagine that that hadn't had an impact on you. Yes. And, and by the way, my mom still has nightmare about, you know, things she let me do without supervision. Oh, really? uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> my mom still has nightmares. I, she said, I can't believe like I let you run free. But she said, I had total confidence in you. And that says a lot. Mm. When you are being trusted, you want to keep that trust. So you don't feel like you have to uh, hide 
or do anything like that, you know, or, or, or lie, or when you feel trusted, you want to keep that trust. It's and so valuable. You don't want to waste it. You don't want to waste it. Absolutely. So, and it's a bit, it's, it's that posture I like to have with my teams as well. I trust them right off the bat and, and it empowers people to enable your work. Cause I remember, uh, clearly, um, uh, Yannick Pepin was one of my OC at, at, uh, at, um, at 5RGC. And I remember to tell him to do something. I was a CEO at the time and he did something else. He came back and he told me about it. And I, he said, I know, I know you told me to do that, but once I got on the ground and I saw it, I did something else. This is what I did. I said, it's perfect. Perfect. It's exactly what I want you to do. So, so yeah, when you trust people, they feel trusted. Uh, they feel that they can step aside when it doesn't make sense. Once they get on the ground, they can use their own creativity to, to solve problems. And that's hugely, that's what, to me, that's what high-performing organizations do. What role do you think humility plays in, in that approach? Huge, huge role, yes. Um, so understanding that you're not the only one with, with the solution, that the solution comes from, from the group getting together, um, some hard decisions made. Not everybody may agree, but everybody has been, has been heard and they understand that like at one point you got to move, move forward. Uh, I think this is extremely empowering for members of a team. Hmm. I mean, we talked about shared experiences, um, and, and support. And certainly, uh, we have a shared experience from, a from Iraq. You know, you as the commander of NATO mission Iraq at a, very challenging time, whether it be regionally or the country itself in Iraq or then globally with the pandemic. I mean, so what was that journey like for you, whether it be, you know, when you first sort of got told you were going to be going into this, this job, incredibly high profile job, very complex situation through just countless, it seemed like every day was a not like a new regular problem, but a problem that was dialed up to 13. And, and yeah, I mean, I just love to hear from your perspective because although we were at the same spot at the same time, I mean, we have our own lived experience from that. Yes. And Chris, I have a clear mental picture of you and I on the roof of NATO Mission Iraq's uh, headquarters. And by the way, I still have your coffee cup, the coffee cup you gave me as you were getting evacuated oh, yeah. from the camp. So I still have that cup in, uh, as, as a coffee mug at home uh, that I use. It's my favorite cup. So I Perfect. still have it. And it, it was on the corner of my desk for the whole time of the mission. And the only cup I used for the, the, the rest of the tour, I was there. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm very fond of that cup. And I'm, you know, I'm getting mentally prepared for it to get broken. Huh? That's a bit like I am. 
like I'm, I'm getting ready to fail and then having a, you know, a, um, a meltdown when the cup <laughs> gets broken one, because somebody is going to drop it as they get it out of the dishwasher because I'm using it right. every day. <laughs> and you think it's just a cup, but it's not about the cup. It's yeah. not about the cup. It's <laughs> about what, what it means, uh, and the time, uh, the time that, uh, you know, we shared over there. So I'm very fond of that cup. So I had to mention it. It's <laughs> <laughs> good to know. <laughs> Yes, and I have still have a, a clear mental picture of, of you dropping by my office just before you were getting ready to go with your full um, um, frag jacket and, you know, everything on, your helmet on and, and ready to board. Yeah, so again, I have some, you know, very clear memories of our, our time shared there. But the mission for me um, was a um, a dream come true. It was a dream come true. Um, my first mission was on the Golden Heights in between Israel and Syria in 1993 as a captain. And I came back transformed from that mission. Um, and... As I was coming back, I said, one day I would like um, to be a force commander of a multinational mission. I would like to do that. But I've always been very reticent in dreaming about something, but never told anybody about mm. it. Never told anyone that, you know, this is something I would like to do. So when the offer came... In 2019, I thought I was the luckiest person in the world, um, an absolutely amazing uh, mission, security sector reform, like you don't get uh, anything, you know, as honorable of a duty to do in assisting a country in building their security appar apparatus. So this is how I showed up in uh, November of 2019. Um, and I had taken time to study Iraq's history, background, um, understanding the dynamics between government, its military, and its people. Um, so... Um, reached out to subject matter experts to understand the reasons for failure in 2014 of the Iraqi military in mm -hmm. 2014, the complete collapse within a few days. With ISIS. Yes. So I showed up um, well prepared, frankly, looking back, uh, because this served me really, really well while I was there. The other piece, too, is that... Um, the mission was was started. It was running. Uh, so I felt like I could do some really, really good thing with the team uh, over there. That lasted about three weeks. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> that lasted. I had three weeks of um, basically of a what we could what we could call a normal normal um uh 
battle rhythm operations. Yes. Right. Because you, when was your, you came in end of November. Right. Yes. I arrived end of November, 2019. And basically third week of December, um, the, um, uh, the, um, Iranian aligned militia groups started, uh, to raise the pressure on the American presence there uh, which led to um, an attack uh, on the uh, U.S. Embassy. And again, standing on the roof of my headquarters, as I saw the U.S. Embassy um, burning across the street, I realized that all of a sudden things would change, that we didn't have the same mission anymore, but definitely... Um, surpassed any of my predictions or expectations. The killing of Soleimani beginning of January, which prompted the Iraqi parliament uh, to pass a a law to expel, pass a resolution to expel all foreign militaries from the Iraqi soil. What does that mean for our mission? Uh, And meanwhile, uh, the rocket attacks just, you know, kept ramping up. Um, and then post Soleimani translated into a missile attack coming from Iran onto El Assad Air Base and the shutting down of the uh, plane with a bunch of Canadians on board, um, in, uh, in close by Tehran. So in the middle of all of that, you know, the security situation, you know, was unsustainable for troops who are not equipped to fight. So basically made the decision and supported by my NATO um, uh, superiors to evacuate uh, as many people out of Baghdad as possible. So there was about, what, 38 of us left um, Mm -hmm. on the ground just to maintain uh, the, uh, the mission going. Um, and then again, lots of instability, very difficult to build, um, a, a security apparatus as, uh, as you have a, a um, and a hostile environment basically, uh, to conduct your work. And on top of that, the pandemic hit in March as well, completely isolating us from the rest of the world, which we were already. Uh, in January due to the security situation. So just as an example, we have a visits office that usually keeps, you know, welcoming people and visitors. Um, I had one visitor for the whole duration of the tour, one, so that the, the, the visits office got converted into an ops office to mm-hmm. manage the, 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 the security situation. Um, but very unstable. And then in March, with another, uh, on top of the pandemic, with another raise in uh, security threats from the Iranian-aligned militia groups, we even had to retrograde the mission even further. Uh, our camp at Taji and Besmaya, we had two other camps, had to be pretty much Closed down. Wait, that big attack, that back-to-back attack on Taji as well. Exactly. While we were there. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so what do we do now? So, like again, thinking back, mm. uh, your schedule 
is absolutely full. It's an insane schedule. You're you're booked from you know from Sunday to Sunday. Yep. You're working through. It's it's booked solid in in coordination and and all of that. And sitting on my couch the next day after the mission was retrograde a second time in March, like my calendar was totally empty, totally, totally empty. Plus my room is already packed uh, because I'm ready to leave on a moment's notice because we're not sure if we're still going to be there the next day. Uh, so um, this is kind of the situation. Where, so so what, what are we doing about it? Um, well, it's, it's all about the chainsaw story again. It's let's hold on one minute. Let's, let's protect some more space for decision. Let's revisit the plan. Maybe there's something we could do better. Maybe we can reframe the, the mission. So I could see some opportunities in what was happening in reframing the mission more strategically uh, because the Iraqi military failed due to strategic and culture, uh, organizational culture issues, mm -hmm. not by the lack of shooters. Like you can train shooters and tactics troops fairly easy. This is not what failed for Iraqis. It's the strategic level of organizing defense uh, strategic logistics, how you push supplies and, and the proper medical care and all of that forward. Because frankly, once you run out of water, once you run out of bullets and once you run out of food, and if you don't have medics forward to, um, to evacuate people and treat them appropriately, no military can sustain more than 24 hours doing this. So reframing the whole mission to the civil, you know, aligning the civil relationship, aligning the whole defense machine, the machinery of defense. Uh, this is where the most difficult work needed to be done in terms of education as well was the second portion of doing that. And a lot of work to be done in terms of realigning also the various paramilitaries, the border, the police. There was a lot of different types of security. Oh, yeah. It was, you know, it was a bit of a, of a constellation. Um, and again, this is fine if you have an authoritarian regime, but if you have a democracy, you need to organize your police services and your military services in a different way, although it still needs to be an Iraqi solution. So reframing the mission at the strategic level was the opportunity we could take because from a NATO perspective, um, pushing a lot of troops out the door to train Iraqi soldiers is easier to measure. Strategic undertaking are harder to, to sense and measure. But again, because of the situation, because of the security and pandemic situation, it is more easily sustained. A smaller force focused at strategic level is the opportunity that we could take doing some great good over there. And in fact, focusing where the effort should be focused at. Anyways, in my personal views, which we, what, which is what we put forward and was accepted at the speed of light. 
and we reframed the mission. We set it up. And then I handed over a complete mission ready to go to my successor in November of 2020. The Danes took over. So now they are aligning to take, to take also like the Ministry of Interior and NATO taking over the mission because okay. of course the U.S. mission is drawing down next door. So aligning all of that was the opportunity that was offered in 2020 to set it up for the future. Mm. So to me, again, it's, it's the chainsaw story, but at the strategic level. So it's, it's kind of, it's amazing how our training system can build people to, to, to take them to that level where we need to be eventually. So mm-hmm. this is, this is my, this is ce que je constate. This is what I, I see has happened for many of us, uh, in our, in our profession, very, very well prepared to do a lot of the complex things that we are doing. When you're dealing with a problem that, that complex, that many elements, do you have the ability, because I certainly don't, uh, do you have the ability to just shut your brain off uh, and focus on other things and be present in other things? Or is there always an, an aspect of your mind that is sort of ruminating or focusing on these sort of big, meaty problems? When you're deployed in theater, that's that's all you have to worry about. It's yeah, eh? a bit different. Yeah. And, and yes, the hamster is, is going at speed. Um, but somehow it's somehow at one point, um, you need to be, to be able to take a bit of a step back. Um, and it's a difficult thing to do when for, for passionate people, for passion, for, for people who want to do the right thing, um, under an incredible amount of pressure in a very, very difficult environment, it's, it's very, it's very difficult. Uh, what I, what I fall back uh, onto is, is, you know, you spoke about humility a bit earlier. Um, it, it, it's, it's a sense that, um, Hey, listen, I, I might not solve the whole thing here. It's, it's all about doing our best and not fall in love with your own plan. Yeah. Um, your plan is not you. Like I need to consistently remind myself of that. And the person who helps me do that has been dead for 2000 years. It's, it's Marcus Aurelius. Um, meditation or les pensées en français is a book that I've had on my night table and it's come with me everywhere for the past 15 years plus. Um, and I can pick it up and at any page and it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, I'm going to learn something new every single time. So Marcus Aurelius has been a companion for many years and I, I find that, you know, what he wrote to himself many, many years ago is still extremely pertinent and relevant 
today. So again, processing a little bit of that step out of of your of your mind uh, a little bit and uh, take a bit of time to reflect and you know go go back at it the next day. Because I'll tell you, some days I went back to my room in Iraq and I didn't want to come out the next day. Uh, so this is when Marcus Aurelius happened to be a great companion. Jenny, uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming by the house and uh, being part of the Northern Sentinels experience. And I'll ask you the question I ask all guests at the end, if you have any recommendations for the listener that uh, educate, elevate, uh, or entertain. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan of um, movies and uh, series, and I, I can't help of, you know, making links to, of course, um, the uh, the issues of the day and uh, what you know the dynamics that we observe around us. So um, I uh, I really enjoyed lately the last two I've enjoyed greatly is Ted Lasso. Yeah. I like again wasn't too sure what I was getting myself into. I I found the language appalling, but I guess it's. It's part of the entertaining piece. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend using that language. But again, on TV, um, it it was part of of the character and what we were getting at in terms of message. So really, really enjoyed this one. And the last, the other one uh, that I uh, thoroughly enjoyed is Lesson in Chemistry. So smartly done. Um, uh, again, uh, highlighting many, many issues of the day, very, very knitted, very smartly in the dialogues, in, in the actors and all of that. So really thoroughly enjoyed those last two series that I watched lately. Thanks for those recommendations. And thanks again for being part of the podcast. You're very welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. You can find information in the show notes on Asbestos Quebec, Jenny's military career, NATO's mission in Iraq, and her entertained recommendations. Thanks for listening to the NSP, and goodbye until next time.